Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, July 5th, 2020. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. At 3.15 a.m. on the morning of March 30th, 2020, under the cloak of darkness, thieves broke into the Singer Lauren Museum in the small town of Lauren in North Amsterdam. Their target? This painting, the Parsonage Garden at Nuenen in spring 1884. It was painted by the Dutch master Vincent van Gogh and valued at over six million U.S. dollars. I'm extremely pissed off this has happened, the museum's director, Jan Rudolf Delorme, said at the press conference the following morning. This is a huge blow. It's extremely difficult, especially at these times, he continued. Well, here's video footage released by the Dutch police showing the break-in. insult to injury, the painting painting didn't even belong to that museum. It was on loan to them from a sister museum, uh, the Groninger. It was the only Van Gogh piece in the Groninger's museum's collection as well. It was painted when Van Gogh was living in Nuenen, where his father was a pastor between the years of 1883 and 1885, and it depicts the ruins of the village church, which the artist could see from his father's house. By the way, The day in which the painting was stolen, March 30th, just so happened to be Vincent Van Gogh's birthday. Go figure. Well, welcome to the second week in our brand new summer summer sermon series entitled Masterpiece, the spirituality behind classic works of art. And for four weeks this summer, we are going to the museum together. We're going to be examining a different masterpiece each week. We're getting to know the artist and finding out how each particular piece was created, and then looking for the spiritual connections that are either explicit or implicit in the piece. And hopefully along the way, you'll not only learn something new, but be encouraged and possibly challenged in your own faith journey. Today we're looking at this amazing work, The Starry Night by Vincent van Gogh, one of my personal favorites. If you log on to Wikipedia, here's what you'll read. He was a Dutch post-impressionist painter who was among the most famous and influential figures in the history of Western art. In just over a decade, he created about 2,100 artworks, including around 860 oil paintings, most of which date from the last two years of his life. They include landscapes, still lifes, portraits, and self-portraits, and are characterized by bold colors and dramatic, impulsive, and expressive brushwork that contributed to the foundations of modern art. He was not 
commercially successful. And his suicide at 37 came after years of mental illness, depression, and poverty. So if you didn't know, now you know. One of the world's most famous painters was not a success during his lifetime. In fact, of his 2,100 pieces of art, he sold only one while he was alive. Just one. This piece, the Red Vineyards at Arles, which now resides at the Pushkin Museum in Moscow. But there is so much more to Vincent van Gogh than this first paragraph from Wikipedia. Just you wait. Vincent van Gogh was born on March 30th, 1853, in the Netherlands. And he was the oldest of five surviving children to Theodorus and Anna. By the way, this is the only portrait of Vincent. It was done when he was 19 years old. Much of what I have to share with you this week comes from Ken Geyer's book, Windows of the Soul. And you've heard me mention Ken's writings a lot. Last week, I borrowed extensively from his book, The Work of His Hands. Well, Windows of the Soul was the very first Ken Geyer book that I ever read, and it had such a lasting impression on me. It compelled me to read other pieces by him. Vincent started out his life wanting to sow the words of the Bible to the poor and the working class people. As I mentioned earlier, his father was a pastor, and in preparation for this task, Vincent would sit at his father's desk night after night and copy page after page of the Bible, translating it into English, German, and French. He wrote, I read it daily, but I should like to know it by heart and to view life in light of its words. While in London, he went to the remotest parts of the city and preached to the poorest of the poor. He was destined to follow in his father's vocational footsteps as a pastor, and, and so he sought a theological education. But Vincent's temperament, zeal, and shall we say eccentricities uh, distanced him from the religious establishment. One of his fellow students said, uh, yeah, he didn't know the meaning of submission. And maybe that's why the school that he attended assigned him uh, more as a concession than a commission to be a lay evangelist to an impoverished coal mining town. It was the spring of 1879. Vincent was assigned to the coal fields of southern Belgium. He was 25 years old. He had already been an art dealer, a language teacher, and a bookseller, but none of those left him feeling fulfilled. His heart was intent on devoting himself to his fellow humankind, and so that's what ultimately brought him to Belgium. The conditions in which the miners worked were abysmal. Laboring in the dark and gaseous bowels of the earth, they faced the dangers of the poisoned air, explosions, underground flooding, and the collapse of the mine itself. In fact, the long hours of backbreaking labor took their toll on the miners as well. Most of the miners, he wrote, are thin and pale from fever. They look tired and emaciated, weather-beaten, and aged before their time. So early in his tenure to the Bornage community, a mining disaster shook their small area. Day and night, Vincent nursed the wounded, fed the hungry, clothed the poor, and when the rubble was cleared, the dead were buried and the sick were made well, the townspeople turned to this Dutchman and adopted him as their spiritual leader. And from then on, every Sunday, they overflowed Vincent's services to hear this unassuming man preach the literal word of God. 
I should be very happy if I someday could draw them, he wrote to his brother Theo, so that those unknown or little-known types would be brought before the eyes of the people. And that is exactly what he started to do. Rainer Maria Rilke, the 19th century acclaimed poet and novelist, says that this was the beginning of Van Gogh's life as an artist. And then everything fell apart. A visiting church official discovered Vincent living in a simple hut, dressed in an old soldier's coat and trousers made out of sackcloth. And when Vincent was asked what he had done with his salary, he simply said he had given it away to the miners. The church official told Vincent that he looked more shabby than the people that he was sent to lead. And when they asked why he gave everything away, he said he thought that's what Jesus taught us to do. Well, there's something as uh, taking too literally the scriptures, the church official argued. He went on to tell Vincent that the conventions he had destroyed would take years for the next minister to rebuild. And with that, Vincent was dismissed as their pastor. He was 27. Thus began his journey as an artist in earnest. I want you to understand clearly my conception of art, he wrote Theo at the beginning of this new season in his life. I want my drawings, which touch some people in in either figure or landscape, I, I should wish to express not sentimental melancholy, he said, but serious sorrow. I want to progress so far that some people will say of my work, he feels deeply and tenderly. And so he drew and painted whatever he could find in that part of the world, and his craft began to grow. Vincent's painting at Eternity's Gate is of a man sitting in a chair, his face buried in his hands. In this print, he wrote, I I have tried to express what seems to me one of the strongest proofs of the existence of God and of eternity. Certainly in the infinitely touching expression of such a little old man, which he himself is perhaps unconscious of, when he is sitting quietly in his corner by the fire. At the same time, there is something precious, something noble, which cannot be destined for worms. Ken Geyer describes this next season in Van Gogh's life. He writes, But no one seemed to understand what this impassioned artist was trying to say. It was as if it were a foreign language to them as well. Through years of rejection, loneliness, and depression, Vincent's mental state deteriorated. So did the state of his spiritual life. The erosion of faith is chronicled in the letters he wrote over the ten years that spanned his life as an artist. Scripture quotations, references to God, and reflections of his faith gradually grew fewer and farther between. At the same time, the anguish and despair grew greater and darker and more turbulent. On May 8, 1889, the ailing artist was admitted to St. Paul de Mazol Asylum in the uh, Arles area of France, just a few miles northeast of Arles. He was given a bedroom there, sparsely furnished, with a small room off of it. And in the meticulously researched movie about Van Gogh's life called Lust for Life, the nun who first showed him his room in the asylum asked, Would you like me to open the windows? 
Vincent nodded, and when she opened them, he looked out on the countryside with its sun-washed fields, and that was a turning point in his life. He converted the small room off of his bedroom into a studio and started once again to paint. You see, the window overlooked a garden, and that garden had a pot of flowers in it, and from that flower pot came his first painting at the asylum. He signed it in the lower right-hand corner, simply Vincent, and he titled it Irises. It was the painting that began to help restore his sanity. And by the way, this very painting rests in the J. Paul Getty Museum here in Malibu, California. Yesterday, an article on NPR.org reported that for many of this country's young people, it's not a fear of infection of the COVID-19 virus that's the greatest concern right now. No, it's the social isolation. For many young adults, life lived at a social distance with a lack of peer support comes at a high cost to their mental health. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says nearly half of the people between 18 and 29 report feeling symptoms of anxiety or depression right now. That's significantly higher than the rate for both their parents and their grandparents. Did you know that suicide is the second leading cause of death for people under the age of 35 right now? Young brains need social connection to feel secure about their identity and their place in the world, says Gregory Lewis, who studies the neuro neurobiology of social interaction at Indiana University. But it's not just young people who are dealing with anxiety and depression during this time of the global pandemic either. People of all ages, genders, ethnicities, and economic statuses are struggling. Where do we turn for help and support? For starters, let me say, if you're struggling with your mental health uh, and your mental well-being right now, please go see a professional counselor. I truly believe that God has given us medical professionals to help in the healing that God wants for each of us. But second, as people of faith, we also turn to God for strength and support. Our scripture reading this morning is from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 41. Uh, the chapters from 40 to 45 in the book of Isaiah were written to the, to the Israelite exiles in Babylon. This was one of the darkest moments in Israel's history. The Babylonians were the superpowers of the ancient Near East, and when they blew into Israel, they not only sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, but they carried away the best and the brightest into captivity. So an entire generation of Israelites grew up in a foreign land. Is it any wonder that many of them started wondering themselves if God had forgotten, forsaken, abandoned them? Depression, anxiety, hopelessness were pervasive, and it's into that context that God speaks through the prophet Isaiah, verses 8 to 10. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. 
amazing couple of verses here. God begins by calling his people by name. Israel, Jacob, offspring of Abraham, my friend. What, a, what an intimate and heartwarming opening. A 2006 study from the Institute of the a Study of Child Development revealed that having one's own name, hearing one's own name, has a tremendous impact on our brains. And that God knows us and calls us each by name, every one of us. And then God addresses, through Isaiah, the, uh, shall we say, elephant in the room. Does God even care about them? Having been taken away 700 or more miles into captivity, having not seen their homeland for decades. Lamentations 520 asks this very question. Why have you forgotten us completely? Why have you forsaken us these many days? The people cry out. And to be honest, most of us have been there, right? At some point or other in our lives, overwhelmed by life circumstances, feeling like it's all we can do just to keep our heads above water, many of us, if we're honest, have seriously wondered at least once if God truly cared about us. But here in Isaiah 41, God says unequivocally, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. And sometimes that's all we need to hear. We just need to be reassured that we are not alone, especially when it comes to the Lord. And we, friends, can be God's agents of reaching out to others and letting them know they are not alone, that we and God are with them. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. And it could be, for some of us today, what we need most is to write these verses down, put them on a three-by-five card, and tape it to our bathroom mirror, put it in the dashboard of our car, put it on the refrigerator door, somewhere where we'll see it every day and be reminded that we are not alone, that God and this community of faith is with us. Abraham Heschel once said, a work of art introduces us to emotions which we have never cherished before. Great works produce rather than satisfy needs by the giving the world of fresh cravings. And so with that in mind, let us turn our attention to the starry night. It was while Vincent was at St. Paul's Asylum that he also painted this masterpiece. Van Gogh officially had been diagnosed with epileptic fits, and it seemed like uh, his mental health was slowly recovering, but unfortunately he relapsed. He began to suffer hallucinations and have thoughts of suicide as he plunged deeper into depression, and accordingly there was a tonal shift in his painting. He returned to incorporating the darker colors from the beginning of his career, and Starry Night is a wonderful example of that. Blues dominate the painting, blending hills into sky. The little village lays at the base and the paintings in browns and grays and blues. And, and even though each building is clearly outlined in black, the yellow and white of the stars and the moon stand out against the sky, drawing our eyes heavenward. One of the biggest points of interest about this painting is that it came entirely from Vincent's imagination. 
None of the scenery matches the area surrounding St. Paul or the view from his window. It was a remarkable break from all the other ways he had painted in the past. In this painting, we see something of the dark night of Vincent's soul. But in it, we also see something of the starlight, the hope. Of the painting, Vincent wrote, that raises again the eternal question, is the whole of life visible to us, or do we in fact know only the one hemisphere before we die? For my part, I know nothing with any certainty, but the sight of the stars, the sight of the stars makes me dream in the same simple way as I dream about the black dots representing towns and villages on the map. Considering the enduring popularity of the starry night, Van Gogh wasn't nearly as enthusiastic about his work. He described it to his brother Theo as a failure and reportedly wrote, all in all, the only things I consider a little good in it are the wheat field, the mountain, the orchard, the olive trees with the blue hills and the portrait and entrance to the quarry. The rest says nothing to me. In the end, only Theo could see the bright light in Vincent's soul. Everyone else just saw a life lived in darkness, if they stopped long enough to see even that. There may be a great fire in our soul, wrote Vincent of his own life, yet no one ever comes to warm himself at it. And the passerbys see only a wisp of smoke coming through the chimney and go along their way. Let the gravity of that statement sink in. How sad life must have been for him to feel so deeply, to want to communicate those feelings so passionately, and yet literally to have no one pay attention or, or connect with anything that you're trying to say. Eventually, his physical, spiritual, mental, and emotional states all deteriorated. Darkness closed in everywhere. In the end, only Theo understood the passion burning within Vincent, a fire that burned and burned until at last it burned out. That last spark is captured on the canvas in a picture he painted in July of 1890 titled simply, Cornfield with Crows. Vincent wrote Theo about the painting, a vast field of wheat under troubled skies. That's the way he described it. And I did not need go out of my way to express sadness and extreme loneliness. Somewhere in those vast fields under those troubled skies, Vincent shot himself. The bullet lodged below his heart. The wound was not immediately fatal, and he was taken to his room where he was attended by a physician and where his brother soon rushed to his side. At 1.30 a.m. in the morning on July 29th, 1890, while Theo was holding Vincent in his arms, the artist spoke his last words, the sadness will never go away. In 1971, Don McLean released his American Pie album. The third track on the project was a song entitled Vincent. Starry, starry night, paint your palette blue and gray. Look out on a summer's day with eyes that know the darkness in my soul. 
shadows on the hills. Sketch the trees and daffodils. Catch the breeze and the winter chills and colors on the snowy linen land. Now I understand what you tried to say to me. How you suffered for your sanity and how you tried to set them free. They would not listen. They did not know how. Perhaps they'll listen now. It's a brilliant song, actually, that so accurately captures the tortured genius that was Vincent van Gogh. Misunderstood, unappreciated in his time. They would not listen. They did not know how. Perhaps they'll listen now. Christ, said van Gogh, is more of an artist than the artist's. He works in the living spirit and the living flesh. He makes men instead of sinners. Like Vincent, Jesus drew our attention to sowers in a field, birds of the air, flowers in the field, and the faces of the poor. Like Vincent, he has, to borrow Don McLean's words, eyes that know the darkness in each of our souls. Like Vincent, he tried to set men and women free, many would not listen. But unlike Vincent, who died from self-inflicted wounds, Jesus died from wounds inflicted by others. Unlike Vincent, whose last days were filled with despair on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, as we shared together this morning around the table, he encouraged his disciples not to let their hearts be troubled. For he was going to prepare a place for them in his father's house, and even in the pain of the cross... He encouraged a thief with the hope of eternity. And even in his forsakenness, he entrusted his spirit into the hands of God. Passersby stood at a distance and criticized both artists. They shook their heads at their pictures, and many walked away. But if you look at both pictures with the right eyes, both the life of Jesus and the life of Vincent van Gogh, you might just sense something beginning to stir deep within your soul. C.S. Lewis once said, we sit down before a picture in order to have something done to us, not that we may do things with it. The first demand of any work of art makes upon us is surrender. Look, listen, receive. As we look at Van Gogh's Starry, Starry Night, may you look deeply. May you see the depth of feeling and struggle that he, and hope, that he was trying to convey in this piece. Both the pain and the hope. And may you see glimpses of the Savior in those wild, colorful brushstrokes who tells us no matter how dark the night may be, do not fear. I am with you. Do not be afraid. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. So thanks be to God for the life and work of Vincent van Gogh. Thanks be to God for Jesus, who is the light of the world, who has come into a world that is filled with darkness, even today, friends. But the light will not be overcome by the darkness. And all God's people said, Amen.